This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here. Welcome back to the show. And if you're new, if this is your first time on Stimulus, great to have you. What we do here is deconstruct ideas and strategies to live and work with intent, not just going through the motions. Don't just suck it up, think differently. And you can find previous episodes with complete show notes at stimuluspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our occasional and irregular newsletter. And if you listen to the show on Apple, the Apple Podcatcher and iTunes, and you haven't done so yet, throw down a review and rating. It makes a lot of difference in the ranking and for potential guests. Do us a solid. Now, what you're about to hear is a little bit different than what we normally do on the show is we're going to talk about a book. In fact, this is going to begin with an extended quote from that book. And it's something I really, really enjoyed. I got a lot out of myriad lessons that apply to medicine, to business, to parenting, to life. In fact, when this first aired, it actually aired on ERCast a, a while back. Several listeners wrote in and said that they had played it, this particular episode, for their kids. Wow, that, that could be the new metric for success of an episode you want to play for your kids. Actually, unless you're using it to punish your kids then I don't want to know what kind of metric it is. <laughs> All right, so let's get to it. Stimulus, episode 59, aim to be a zero. A friend of mine was once in a crowded elevator when a senior astronaut got on and just stood there, visibly impatient, waiting for someone to divine that he needed to go to the sixth floor and push a button. I didn't spend all those years in university to wind up pushing buttons in an elevator, he snapped. Incredibly enough, someone did it for him. This incident made such a big impression on my friend that I heard about it, and probably a lot of other people did too. For me, it was a cautionary tale about the pitfalls of ever thinking about yourself as an astronaut or a doctor or a whatever. To everyone else, you're just an arrogant guy on the elevator craving significance. Over the years, I've realized that in any new situation, whether it involves an elevator or a rocket ship, you will almost certainly be viewed in one of three ways. As a minus one, actively harmful, someone who creates problems. As a zero, your impact is neutral and doesn't tip the balance one way or the other. Or you'll be seen as a plus one someone who actively adds value. Everyone wants to be a plus one, of course, but proclaiming your plus oneness at the outset almost guarantees you'll be perceived as a minus one, regardless of the skills you bring to the table or how you actually perform. This might seem self-evident, but it can't be because so many people do it. During the final selection round for each new class of NASA astronauts, for example, there's always at least one individual who's hell-bent on advertising him or herself as a plus one. In fact, all of the applicants who make it have impressive qualifications and really are plus ones in their own fields, but invariably someone decides to take it a little further and behave like an astronaut, one who already knows just about everything there is to know. Sometimes the motivation is over-eagerness rather than arrogance, but the effect is the same. One chief astronaut used to make the point of phoning the front desk at the clinic where applicants were sent for medical screening to find out which ones treated the staff well 
and which one stood out in a bad way. The nurses and clinic staff have seen a whole lot of astronauts over the years, and they know what the wrong stuff looks like. We should behave in the same way, whether we're meeting a head of state or a seventh grade science class. Frankly, this makes good sense even if you're not an astronaut. You never really know who will have a say in where you wind up. It could be the CEO, but it might well be the receptionist. If you enter a new environment intent on exploding out of the gate, you risk wreaking havoc instead. When you have some skills but don't fully understand your environment, there is no way you can be a plus one. At best, you can be a zero. But a zero isn't a bad thing to be. You're competent enough not to create problems or make more work for everyone else, and you have to be confident and prove to others that you are before you can be extraordinary. There are no shortcuts. Even later, when you do understand the environment and can make an outstanding contribution, there's considerable wisdom in practicing humility. If you really are a plus one, people will notice. And they're even more likely to give you credit if you're not trying to rub their noses in your greatness. The best way to contribute to a brand new environment is not by trying to prove what a wonderful addition you are, it's by trying to have a neutral impact. To observe and learn from those who are already there and to pitch in with the grunt work whenever possible. One benefit of aiming to be a zero, it's an attainable goal. Plus, it's often a good way to get to plus one. If you're really observing and trying to learn rather than seeking to impress, you may actually get the chance to do something useful. If you're confident in your abilities and sense of self, it's not nearly as important to you whether you're steering the ship or pulling an oar. Your ego isn't threatened because you've been asked to clean out a closet or unpack someone else's socks. In fact, you might actually enjoy it if you believe that everything you're doing contributes to the mission in some way. And that is an excerpt from a book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth by Chris Hadfield. And that book will be the focus of our conversation today on this episode. And the title of the chapter that excerpt comes from is Aim to Be a Zero. We'll get back to that in a moment. But our guest for this conversation is our philosopher in residence, Dr. Dan McCollum. Dan actually turned me on to this book as well as many others. And there are so many lessons in this book that apply directly to what we do. And this one, this aim to be a zero, Dan and I independently felt was one of the most impactful. But Dan, I'm going to have to say, when I first saw the title of this chapter, Aim to Be a Zero, my thought was, what kind of nonsense is this? I mean, who would want to aim to be a zero, especially us? We are high-level performers, but that mindset that, yep, I'm a high-level performer, that's exactly the problem that the author of the book, Chris Hadfield, was talking about. It kind of strikes you at your core of, what do you mean aim to be a zero? Like, it's almost offensive. And you look at how a lot of us came into medicine. You know, we were probably towards the top of our high school class. We did really well in college. You probably had to do pretty well in medical school to get into an emergency medicine residency now. And we've almost selected folks that don't want to be zeros, but want to be in the front of the pack. And so I think there's a lot of wisdom of just being part of a system, doing things right, and not trying to be a superstar that's a plus one. In your work environment, you work in a university setting and you are working with students and residents and young attendings. I mean, you're seeing people throughout the spectrum of their training and... When you're advising 
young learners or trainees on how to present themselves, on how to act, not just the stuff to learn. What do you say? How do you guide them? I mean, that's a, a really tough question. I think that when we're looking at folks to select, one of the biggest turnoffs we have are folks that act like the negative aspects of the plus one that Chris Hadfield mentions in his book of, you know, folks that don't treat the receptionist well. For us, it's like the program coordinator. If you make our office staff feel bad, like you're out. But when we're advising them, we often try to instill the, you know, shoot for the stars type mindset. But I think that just drilling in that this bread and butter idea of almost a workmanlike, a blue collar approach to it. You know, when you're in a trauma resuscitation, it's very commonly the core stuff that we do, such as making sure that you do a good primary survey, even though that's so boring in a lot of ways, that actually is the thing that saves a life as opposed to that one out of 100 patients that might benefit from Reboa or something that is cutting edge. So we try to instill it almost by modeling that behavior ourselves of focusing on those core things as opposed to shooting for the stars on every single patient. I think another example of that, and I found myself doing it, is in a resuscitation, like a trauma resuscitation or something, when there's another specialist there, is to show them how smart you are. And the temptation is so seductive. You are smart, and it can be such a challenge to just get the job done quietly, communicate in a quiet and efficient manner, and not prove true the saying, wise men speak because they have something to say, fools because they have to say something. I've caught myself up many times, especially when there's other consultants around, because there's something about, you know, when that trauma surgeon's at the bedside with you and something gets said and you're just like, oh, well, let me prove how smart I am because I'm going to quote something from this article I read, as opposed to sometimes just letting it go and focusing on the honestly boring stuff of, did we give tranexamic acid? Are we appropriately giving blood? None of that's cutting edge as much as just what you're supposed to do, but it feels great to impress others and show off your ego. <laughs> You're talking about doing the simple, important stuff. Getting the job done is really such a key. The danger of being a plus one, presenting yourself as a plus one, it will impair your ability to learn, make you look like an insecure ass, of course. But in our field, there's something else involved in this, and that's the patient. How good is our skill really? And give an example of this. Coming out of residency, I was so good, Dan. I was practically a plus two. <laughs> I love it. That's a plus two, man. And I mean, I was the best damn intubator on the planet. I did not need any extra training on this probably ever. And those who have been listening to this show for a while have probably heard the story that I felt this way until probably about halfway in my first year of attending hood when a patient died because I could not intubate her, could not secure her airway. And I, I mean, I didn't have like a, a backup plan. It just it went bad and she eventually died. That was 19 years ago. And I still think about it. Such hubris. The weight and power of ego impairs our ability to learn and harms patients. And I'll tell you, I thought, I don't need any training. After that, that was my mission to reassess my mindset and think, oh, I am not as good as I thought I was. And I need training just like anybody else. I mean, I am constantly humbled at the huge mistakes I've made in the past. And sometimes I would get lucky and there wouldn't be a bad patient outcome. But, you know, I had an angioedema patient that was fairly young that died because I couldn't crack them quickly enough. And I eventually got the airway secure, but eventually wasn't good enough for this patient. And so they died. And it seems awfully similar to your experience. And before that, I thought I was really hot shit. 
about cracking people. I, I thought that I was ready more than other folks were, but I wasn't. And if I was aiming to be a plus zero, you know, just meat and potatoes, let's learn from some other folks. I wonder if I could have gleaned some extra skills from surgeons or other folks like ENT that might have more experience with that and become better. Because it's really hard to back down when you show off your ego and how smart you are. It is so hard to take a step back and be like, oh, I didn't know about that trauma surgeon. Tell me more about what your experience has been with liver lax or something like that. It's so hard to come back down. It's so easy to go back up. If you start as a plus zero and you're open to learning, you're just going to pick up all kinds of stuff from these other folks that, that may not have even known that they were teaching you. And this leads into training and kind of the intersection with medical training and astronaut training. This book, obviously, Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. There's this adage, don't sweat the small stuff. You know, there's a lot of adages based around that, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Everything is small stuff. But really, the small stuff is exactly what we should sweat. And quoting from the book, looking on the dark side, sweating the small stuff, viewing your colleagues as the last people in the world, knowing the bold face, recognizing when to use it. In the end, none of it may save you. But in a real crisis, what other hope have you got? The more you know and the keener your sense of operational awareness, the better equipped you are to fight against a bad outcome right to the very end. Our core skill, the one that made us astronauts, the ability to parse and solve complex problems rapidly with incomplete information in a hostile environment was not something any of us had been born with. That last part means solving complex problems rapidly, incomplete information, and you're not born with that skill. That right there describes the quintessential nature of emergency medicine. But there's also something in there that he talked about flight rules. Flight rules, that's not a term that we use in medicine, but it is definitely a concept that we use without knowing this exact term. And what this is, is flight rules are the hard-earned body of knowledge recorded in manuals that list step-by-step what to do if X occurs and Y. Essentially, they are extremely detailed, scenario-specific, standard operating procedures. It's very easy when, you know, it hits the fan. You say, I got to intubate this guy quickly. Let's not use an intubation checklist. When in reality, that's the time when a checklist is the most important because you don't have time to screw it up. The guy that you know that you need to tube sometime in the next half hour, honestly, a lot of those are 19-year-old kids that are going to be just fine either way. You don't have to have everything lined up properly. The ones that you really, quote unquote, don't have time to use a checklist are the ones we probably should the most. And so by having the cold logic of when the pressure isn't on, thinking through what are the steps towards properly intubating or properly putting in a central line or treating a patient with back pain or whatever the scenario is, if we make these flight rules in advance, we won't do stupid risks. So that if you're seeing someone with back pain and you make sure every single time, you make sure there's no red flag symptoms, it makes you really uncomfortable appropriately when you're like, wait a minute, that guy's got saddle anesthesia. I have to operate because that's in my bold face. And fighter pilots who obviously use flight rules because <laughs> that's, that's where they come from. <laughs> that's kind of what they remember in a dogfight or in a crisis situation is just remember the bold face. Okay. Is there weakness? Is there incontinence? Is there fever? Bup, bup, bup. Those, those are my three flight rules. Everything else, it'll all get sorted out. So I, I think that there's something really beautiful as well of what he mentions with the flight rules being that even when you follow the rules, sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes you can run a perfect code and it doesn't matter who you are. You can be the Greek god of resuscitation and you are just not going to get ROSC on this patient. They're too sick. 
doesn't matter how quick you are with ECMO or whatever, they're just not coming back. And it's honestly the human body is too complex for us to have everything figured out. And he's riding around in fighter craft as well as space shuttles and whatnot. And sometimes things just fail. And even if the astronauts were perfect, the space shuttle is going to explode. So I really found a lot of value in the fact that you follow these flight rules to do the best you can because it's, it's all you got. It's as good as you can do. But sometimes there will be bad patient outcomes. And if you properly prepared and if you properly did everything that you could, sometimes bad things will happen. And that's okay. You know, nowhere in the flight rule does it say in boldface, be perfect, because there's only so much that you can do. I mean, sometimes you are just a speed bump on the path to a bad outcome and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And there's also nothing in your diagnostic acumen or even your gestalt that will be able to pick up that subtle presentation of disease that is so bizarre that nobody could have figured out because it was impossible. So perfectionism and zero likelihood of failure, not part of the flight rules for anything. Totally agree. I think perfectionism falls into that plus one. I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to save every patient. I'm never going to flub an intubation. Like that type of thinking is what sets you up for nasty failures, as opposed to being open to always improving and doing as well as you can, but knowing that you are just human. And honestly, what we're tasked with is impossible. To be able to treat the first hour of every condition conceivable is beyond our human limitations. And this touches on another principle that we fall prey to because of how we've sifted through this funnel or the process of how we got to our current position as emergency clinicians. You know, we've been weeded out to such a small group of overachievers, you might say. And many of us have always been the star, the darling in our environment, have little experience with failure. And that can be a barrier to learning as an astronaut in medicine or anything if you've always been the star, you haven't failed. And here's what Chris Hadfield says about this. Early success is a terrible teacher. You're essentially being rewarded for a lack of preparation. So when you find yourself in a situation where you must prepare, you can't do it. You don't know how. Even the most gifted person in the world will at some point during training cross a threshold where it's no longer possible to wing it. I love this passage, just the idea that we learn so much from when things don't go well, particularly with my work with emergency medicine residents. These are some of the brightest folks ever. They're almost all towards the top of their med school class. The old adage of we're really thankful that we don't have to apply to emergency medicine again <laughs> because there's that. no way that I would get in. I mean, it's becoming truer and truer every year. You look at these folks with CVs that are literally 10 to 20 pages long. They're, they're people that I accept in my program that have done more research than I have. Just stunned at how quality these folks are. But some of them have a real hard time the first time that they have a shift. And there's someone that has hypotension and nobody knows why. And it's just really, really difficult for them to dust themselves off and move on with their shift because they've met success after success after success. So this idea that you sort of have to get into a fight and get your nose bloodied. You know, you can't learn judo without getting tossed to the mat by someone much better than you a few times. That concept is so key. When you say dust off, every time I hear that phrase, I think of the Jocko Willink, good, his good video when he's talking about <laughs> dealing with adversity. And I, I'm just going to have to say it, you know, when the bad things happen and get knocked down, get up, dust off, re-engage, 
and go on the attack. Of course, you know, a little machismo there, but oh, <laughs> I, 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 loved, I love that imagery, man. I love that imagery. Yeah, I think Jocko's got a lot to teach us about this, the preparation that you can achieve because of your prior losses. You know, we each had, you know, airway issues that happened. And I guarantee you that both of us spent a tremendous amount of time preparing for the next time that we manage an airway to get ready for that. In many ways, the airways that I failed to get are far more instructive to me than the dozens that I had no trouble because I honestly didn't learn anything from those and might have even developed some bad habits from those that were successful despite not doing things perfectly. You know, we're talking a lot about training, uh, about technical skills, about being a zero and not positing yourself as this plus one. And that gets into just general behavior. And there's this interesting anecdote in the book that talks about how to behave, especially when you're in a leadership or senior position. And we as clinicians can sometimes see ourselves as these independent operators. And we work in these environments where, you know, we don't always feel like we have control over everything. We got triaged all these patients. We don't have control over triage or our capacity to manage that flow or administration has put this or that edict upon us. How dare they? But really, that's not how we're seen by the rest of the staff. We are seen as the captain of the ship, no matter how much familiarity there is or how much joking or jocularity or whatever, or first name basis. That's still how we are seen, even if subconsciously. And even small things that we do or say can have such an impact on someone that, trust me, trust me, it can last for years. Oh my God, can it last for years? And here's the uh, story from the book. It was a happy day for me when that astronaut left the office, but in retrospect, I learned a lot from him. For example, that if you need to make a strong criticism, it's a bad idea to lash out wildly. Be surgical. Pinpoint the problem rather than attack the person. Never ridicule a colleague, even with an offhand remark, no matter how tempting it is or how hilarious a laugh line. The more senior you are, the greater the impact your flippant comment will have. Don't snap at the people who work with you. When you see red, count to 10. It's just another example of how this almost directly applies to what we do every day. I've seen a lot of times where people got laid low by a comment that wasn't even meant to be that harsh, but just absolutely shattered their clinical confidence. And I shudder at the thought that I've ever mistakenly done something like that by not properly critiquing a behavior as opposed to a person. We're actively working on improving our feedback system in our residency. And one of the hardest things to do is being very precise, not just, oh, you don't make good clinical decisions, but oh, I noticed that you have a hard time risk stratifying moderate risk chest pain patients. Like that is really, really hard to do. And it's much easier just to say, improve your clinical decision-making, whatever that means. So as easy as it is to tell hilarious orthopedic jokes, you know, like, I mean, they're so funny, right? You know, just cracking wise about, you know, the politeness of a CT surgeon or, or how much orthopods don't know about the renal system. Those are so easy to do but they're not constructive. It doesn't actually help us getting closer to working and being part of the system that we want to be. And I want to finish up with something in the book that's mentioned a lot, and that is expeditionary behavior. I don't know how you describe this now. I'd say the willingness to be open to discovery or endure hardships for the sake of the mission. I mean, how would you describe expeditionary behavior? Just being open to the suck. You know, <laughs> that it's hard to learn. And, you know, it's much easier when you know everything. When I read about 
expeditionary behavior in the book, my tolerance for whining, especially on shift. Now, I'm going to talk about in myself and in others, like listening to myself whine or others whine, became so close to zero, like the asymptotic curve getting right to zero that when I hear it or even when I think it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. If you're not part of the team, part of the common goal, either shut the hell up. I guess I'm getting back to previously. I should, <laughs> I should say that more sensitively. Reset your attitude or find an environment where you do feel aligned with the goal. And here's what Chris Hadfield says. Whining is the antithesis of expeditionary behavior, which is all about rallying the troops around a common goal. The expeditionary behavior, you know, being on that shift, like, okay, I know this is hard. I know administration is not perfect. I know this charge nurse doesn't do everything you love to do. But if you're going to sit there every shift and just bitch about that, or if I'm going to complain about anything, it just poisons the pool and destroys that core d'esprit. It reminds me a lot of some of the psychology of locus of control and things that you can internally control versus things that you're affected by that. And there are some things that just suck about certain shifts that are just rough. And if you notice problems, either adjusting the situation where, you know what, I noticed this problem, we can improve this by doing X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to write some emails to my administrator or take this on as my own project to improve, or change internally where, yeah, it does suck that there's way too many psych patients that have come in on this shift. But really, it's a lot more about me resetting my internal feelings about I need to help those folks. I need to get my feelings and thinking straight or else I need to change where I'm located. I love that locus of control. The internal locus of control is really where we need to look when things aren't going our way. And Kristen Maurer said this a couple months ago, the hospitalist that we spoke with, that if you have a problem with everybody, you know, it's like everybody seems to give you a hassle. Maybe everybody isn't the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Look inside. What is the saying? Happiness isn't finding new landscape. It's having new eyes. I think that's just a beautiful way of putting it. And I promise that we're not going to make every single one of these podcasts about stoicism. But like, I think the stoics (laughs) just nail it on this about if you truly can make yourself well and truly happy, regardless of what the situations are, be there no one in the waiting room or 50 in the waiting room, as soon as you can make yourself happy with the fact that I'm going to do my best, I'm going to try to help these folks and enjoy those encounters, the better off you're going to be. Because that way, regardless of whether your next shift at the VA has some administrative stuff that just makes your mind want to explode, if you can get past that and understand that we still have the greatest job on earth, and we just read a book about an astronaut, and I honestly would rather do emergency medicine than go into space, when you really think about how great of a privilege it is to help people this way, then it can make you bear all the stupid stuff about EMRs and properly documenting sepsis protocols. You, you can get past that and just love the joy of emergency medicine. And a perfect ending. Thank you so much, Dan. Always a treat. Thanks for recommending this book. And listeners, it's worth a read. I mean, you've gotten some little clips out of it, but it's so much more, especially if you're into space or astronautics or any of that stuff. It goes into so much detail about how that stuff actually works. Absolutely love this book. Thanks, Dan, for coming on the show. Wonderful chatting with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if any of the listeners have ideas of books that they want us to uh, look into, I'm a voracious reader and so would love to hear what people have as recommendations of some other stuff. You know, he's not kidding about being a voracious reader. Sometimes I'll, I'll call Dan with a couple book recommendations and two days later, they're all done. 
And we do get some great book recommendations from listeners. And if you've got something that has been meaningful to you, we want to know about it. Maybe we'll even make it a topic for a show. And that's going to be it for today. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.